We have a saying around here on the staff team that uh, Jesus will build his church because he, he told us, he said, I will build my church. And one of the delightful things about being on a, on a church staff is that he did not tell us that he will balance the books if you're an accountant or teach the classroom if you're a teacher or build the homes if you work in construction. But if you work for a church, you serve a God who said, I will do your job for you. I will build the church. And we have to remind each other of that all the time. Uh, This morning, it's an awesome, awesome announcement that I get to make that one of the ways that Jesus often builds his church is by raising up leaders to serve the church. And so Kentwood, I would love for us to join Fulton Heights in welcoming a new location pastor at Fulton Heights. His His name is Eric Bohr. And he comes to us from a local church uh, here in town for several years. And before that, worked as the area director for Young Life. And before that, an accountant, which is going to be an awesome thing to have along. I, try, I make all these jokes. I can't help it. Like, dude, you got into ministry. Like, there's atrocious math in the Bible. Like, one lunch, 5,000 people. Like, how do you balance those books? It just... It doesn't work. So I'm looking forward to working along with him uh, a lot more in the future. But what I love about Eric's heart is that it, it breaks to connect people in the community to the love of Jesus. And that's what we're all about, bringing people far from God to new life in Christ. So Eric, welcome. We've got a little welcome video. Check your inboxes later on this week to, to learn more. <clears throat> Today we're in, we're in part two of a series called uh, Jonah. And as I said last week, I'll say it again one more time. Uh, it's not about the fish, okay? It's about what God is up to in our lives. Let's not, uh, let's not be distracted. Uh, last week, part one in Jonah, we saw this prophet of God, this guy, run away from God 1,500 miles in the wrong direction. And God wanted to intervene. He sent this storm. So last week, it was called the storm. Uh, sent the storm to intervene, not to, not to punish him, right? Not to get him back, but to bring him back. Because we said last week, you will do anything, anything in the world when somebody is in danger to save them from that danger. And that's what we see God doing. Uh, there's not wrath and anger in the storm. No, Jesus took that upon himself. There is love, there is kindness, there is grace in the storm. He didn't send the storm to pay him back, to pay you back, but to bring you back. Uh, today we move on from the storm and we're going to get into, uh, into the crisis, which we, what, what we're calling it. And uh, as we head into this time together, before we hear the story, just kind of overarching question that I want to ask us as a community. How do people change? How do, how do I change? How do the people that you came here with really change? And, and you can probably think of a lot of things. Uh, I'd like you to think of uh, somebody in your life, maybe it's, maybe it's you in particular, who needs to change. Maybe it's the person that you are sitting next to right now and you're kind of like elbowing each other a little bit and like, oh, we're getting into some change here, right? I can see those elbows, by the way. It's not hard, Fulton Heights, even from here. How do people change? Um, you, you, you have somebody in your life that you absolutely love to pieces. Uh, but when they clip their toenails and don't keep track of the clippings to throw them away later, it's absolutely disgusting. And you're like, this needs to change. Uh, the person that, again, you love to pieces, but they leave their socks at night all around the house everywhere. And they're like radioactive and nobody wants to touch them to put them away. And so it's like, please, it's been almost 20 years. Can we just figure this one thing out? Everything is perfect besides this one thing. It's getting a little personal for me. And that's, I'm going to back off from that. It's about you guys. It's not about me. How do people change? I have awesome kids. They're wonderful. 
they're going to be teenagers at some point, and it's possible that they're going to like miss a curfew once or twice down the road. Some of you have been in that position. And when 10 o'clock turns into 10.01, panic is going to set in. I don't need to know where they are. I need to know if they're alive, right? And so when they come in a little bit late, it's not just like a disrespect or a disobedience kind of thing. I'm like, it's panic time. It's anxiety time. It's desperation time. How do we change? How do we tweak that behavior to like, please, please come in at the appointed time? How do people change? The person that you work with and the job site in the office how do we get them to show up on time? How do, we, how do we get them to give, if not 100%, maybe just 90? I would settle for that much. How do people change? There was a gentleman in our community, a young man, um, several, several years ago, and he would come to church with his, with his like, whole entourage, which I love, because uh, it's like a whole you know, group of guys, like the house, maybe the neighbor's house, something, and they would all like, kind of come in together. And I was talking to one of the guys in the friend group, and he was like, oh, man, like, there's this guy that we live with, and he is, he's great. He's a super good guy, but, but man, there are some issues there that we have got to root out. You know, and you start to kind of get into it. They're like, I mean, he is just, again, love the dude, but he's an absolute slob. And for a group of, like, college-age guys to say, this guy is a slob, I mean, it's saying something, Right? They're like, I'm afraid to go into his room because I don't know what I'm going to find, right? I haven't seen the floor in months. It's been that long. I just, I don't know what's, what's happening. There's some hygiene issues there. He's, none of us in the house have ever seen him like go into the bathroom to take a shower or emerge out. And that just makes us nervous, right? Like brushing teeth, combing hair. He just doesn't take care of himself. He survives on the two main food groups of pizza and PBR, and it's like, I recognize it won a blue ribbon in 1844, but like, it's not healthy. Like, we've tried everything, and we kind of unpack, and it's like, we've tried the carrot and the stick. Like, we've tried incentivizing him, you know? Like, hey man, let me do the laundry for you. Let me show you how everything works so we can like clean up this aroma that's coming out of your room. Like, we've, we've tried the carrot, we've tried the stick. If you're not going to do the chore wheel kind of thing, and we all have to, I think we're going to have to charge you our, our time. So your rent is going to be like a little bit more than everybody else's because, because we're all chipping in and you're just not like we've tried everything and nothing, nothing works. How do people change? That's, just, that's a question for us this morning. And to, to help us answer that question, we're going to go maybe to the heart of the crisis and we're going to see how Jonah changes. Uh, because it's one thing for God to send the storm and to, and to deliver him, to, to bring him back. Uh, you could think of that in your Christian walk as like salvation. But if we don't change our behaviors, we're going to end up right back in that scenario that we need to be rescued from again. So there's like this salvation component to it, but there's also like the, okay, now we need to change some beliefs, maybe change some behaviors so we don't end up in the eye of the storm once again, one more time. So to answer the question, we're going to go to, again, the book of Jonah, and we're going to start it off. We're going to start it off here in Jonah, and we're still in chapter 1. We're going to get into uh, chapter 2 here today, I, uh, I, I promise on that one. But uh, Jonah, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, is, uh, <laughs> Now the Lord provided a huge fish. It's not about the fish, right? The Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish 
for, keep track of this, this one's important, three days and three nights. Obviously, it's, it's got a huge biblical uh, reference later on in the biblical story. We see Jesus in the heart of the grave for three days and three nights. So it's got that going for it. Um, but it's also, it's also just a really, really long period of time, right? Like three days inside of the, the belly of a fish. Um, not about the fish, uh, but just a couple of things about a fish. Uh, he, he's inside. It's 108 to 114 degrees. You know, uh, most fish, the in, insides are, are whales, I guess you'd say. Um, inside, it's, it's pretty hot. I don't know how big this thing is, right? We, no, nobody really knows how big this thing is. But I just have to imagine, it's not like, it's not like a lot of room to spread out, right? I just imagine, like, he's, he's kind of just in there. Maybe he's like, he's, he's, you know, arms and legs like, like folded in like this. And he's just like, he's just angry, Inside, inside of that fish, uh, there's, there's gastric fluids inside of whales that have these like bleaching properties. Uh, stay tuned for like part three of this one because I think that one is going to make a reappearance. Um, so it's like eating away at him. He's, he's being digested like inside of this thing, right? Like I just want to point out, it's not exactly a pleasant experience being inside, inside of a fish for three days and three nights. But I will say, remember this. It's not God's meanness that has him there. Remember throughout this story, it's God's mercy that has him there. So three days and three nights, he's in the belly of the fish to learn something. Let's continue on. Um, Chapter two, verse one. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Uh, other translations, as we kind of flip through, and, uh, and, and just how different English translators render, render the original Hebrew text. Some of them say, um, then Jonah inside the fish, began to pray to the Lord his God. Hold on here. Um, he got thrown overboard. He got swallowed up by a huge fish. And it took three days and three nights for him to start praying to God. I mean, I don't even know about you guys. Even if, you, even if you're not even a really religious or spiritually minded person, I would submit to you that when you get thrown overboard, you are praying on the way into the water. You get swallowed up by a fish. I, the first thing that I do is start to pray, not out of holiness, but out of self-preservation, right? Like prayer is going to be my go-to in the moment. You just picture him inside of that fist with his arms and his legs just folded like this. And we can see something about the character of Jonah screaming at us. This guy is stubborn. It reminds me of this, uh, this, this meme that I saw a little while ago. It's uh, like from the ad council. It's just telling like men to, you know, go in and get like regular health checkups, which just as a guy, we're absolutely terrible for ad. Um, and this is what... <laughs> This year, thousands of men will die from stubbornness. And somebody will spray paint. No, we won't. <laughs> I just, I, I absolutely love it. But this is, this is what we see. This is, this is who Jonah is inside, inside, of, uh, inside of the fish. He's praying to the Lord his God, um, finally now, because he's stubborn. Because this is, this is not what he wants to be doing. Remember, uh, the Assyrians took it all out, uh, took out their cruelty on the nations closest to them, northern nation of Israel, where Jonah, Jonah was a prophet. Uh, one of the commentators said, think about what this would have meant for Jonah. To go into the capital city of his nation's enemy and to bring a word from the Lord. Most likely they're going to kill him just immediately. He doesn't want that. 
Uh, the alternative to that is he goes in and they believe him. And God, because of his abounding love, slow to anger, is going to forgive them. He doesn't want that either. One of the commentators said this. He goes, imagine this. It's 1942. And God instructs a Jewish man to go into the heart of Berlin and to preach about the love of God. <laughs> we start to understand this. This is a difficult assignment for Jonah. This would be a difficult assignment for all of us. Um, it's not just about Jonah, though. right? It's about each one of us. God has a difficult assignment for you. You know, and maybe it's not going into the capital city of your sworn enemy, but he's got a difficult assignment about heading over on the job site and sharing the love of God with somebody that you just absolutely disdain. And you get the feeling like it's mutual. <laughs> he has a difficult assignment for you. The question, right, that we asked last week, he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. We're going to rephrase that question uh, for our purposes this morning in a way that maybe is a little bit more, a little bit more mem- memorable. Um, are you ham or eggs? Ham or eggs? This is a reference straight out of Grey's Anatomy, and I'm not, like, proud of that, but it's pretty good, though. See, there's uh, animals, ham and eggs. Uh, both of them are, uh, uh, both animals have uh, involvement in the, the food-making process. Um, eggs are laid by chickens, right? Uh, ham is made from pigs. One of them, you could say, is a little more committed than the other one. So the question is, if you're eggs, you just want to be involved in the things of God. I just kind of want to be around when the good things of God take place. But if you're ham, you're like, I am full on committed. I'm going to Berlin in 1942. If you're ham, you're going, I'm going to go into the heart of the capital city of Assyria and to Nineveh, and I'm going to go bring the love of God. I'm going to go bring that love of God to this guy on the job site that I absolutely can't stand, or the person on the team that doesn't want to speak to me. I am committed to the things of God. I'm ham and not eggs. This is what kept Jonah in the belly of the fish. Like it, it, it wasn't God's punishment on him. It was his absolute stubbornness to give over every last square inch of his life to Jesus. Let's uh, continue on with the story here because it gets real interesting real quick here. Okay, um, chapter 2, verse 3. We're just kind of moving through chapter 2 here. And, uh, and I like kind of on the screen that we have it that uh, this is how you'll see it in your Bible. It kind of turns into, into prose. It's less of a story now, and it's more Jonah's prayer. This is his reflection. These are the things that he's praying to God from inside the belly of the fish. And he said, God, you hurled me. This is your fault, God. You brought me here. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me, and all your waves and breakers swept over me, and I said, I had been banished from your sight. I have been banished from your sight. Uh, Let's play a little game here. I'm going to look for a little, uh, little congregational feedback on this one. Uh, genuine question, we're going to answer it out loud. Had Jonah, no, sorry, does Jonah feel like he has been forgotten about God? Yes, absolutely. Fulton Heights, nice job. Uh, has Jonah actually been forgotten about God? No, absolutely not, right? But for some reason, he couldn't see it. He's looking at it going, this is how it feels. 
This is the place in it. God, I have been banished from your sight. Because I'm looking around at my circumstances, and that's kind of what it feels like. God, you have absolutely forgotten about me. Life circumstances, the crises that we find ourselves in, have a way of doing that. And we can answer correctly in a, in a church setting like this one. It's a whole other story when we're out there on the front lines. It's a whole other story when, when we're suffering the heartache of a breakup right around Valentine's Day. It's a whole other story when we're experiencing this, this financial crisis. Personally, I'm going to lose the business. I might lose the house. I've definitely, I've definitely lost the respect of the people around me. And we start to go in this like panic mode. And we start to immediately just assume that God has absolutely forgotten about me. And this is the hidden presence of God. I don't know how else to describe it. It's the hidden presence of God. It's not that God has forgotten you. It just feels like that to you. And we need, we need to be reminded in a powerful way this morning that God has not and will not ever forget about you. Those circumstances around us would suggest it. He has not and will not ever forget about you. I'll play another little, another little game here. Um, for a long, long time, companies have been hiding these like, uh, these like, like corporate secret meanings in their logos. And you see these meanings like all the time. Uh, or you see, you, sorry, you see these logos for years and years. You've seen them thousands, thousands of times. And, and you never pick up on like the subtle hidden meanings. And then once you see a couple of those things, like you can't unsee it, okay? And so that's what I would like for us to apply to our life with God is to say, listen, it's so easy for me, for me to miss this hidden presence of God. And I, I don't, want to ever be able to unsee it again. So we're going to play a little game. We've got some corporate logos going on here. Um, Tostitos, chip company, delicious, right? Awesome. Um, has anybody ever noticed, like right in the middle of the chip uh, logo, there's like a couple of dudes uh, just hanging out, eating a bowl of chips together, right? You ever noticed that? And you, you, you see that maybe for the first time, like right now, and you're going, oh, that's amazing. These guys are so clever. Yeah, they're clever. And now every time you see the Tostitos logo, you're like, there's that hidden meaning. We're celebrating over a, over a bowl of chips and salsa. Awesome. Play another one. Beats headphones. Big fan. Love that. It kind of looks like, like, a, like a person, right? Like wearing, wearing their headphones. They got their, they got their beats going on. It's like, oh, that's kind of fun. Okay. A Hershey's Kiss. Hershey's Kiss. Right in the logo of the Hershey's Kisses, we see a delightful little chocolate Hershey's Kiss right there. Yeah. Valentine's Day. Happy, happy Valentine's Day. Every time you see this, you're going to think, it's right there. My absolute favorite. And this one, whew, this gets me. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? FedEx, Package Express. And right here, we got this little arrow, okay? It hidden in the FedEx logo. And I'm telling you, from personal experience, somebody pointed this out to me like five years ago. Every time I have seen the FedEx logo ever since, my eye immediately goes exactly to that little, little arrow in the FedEx truck. I can't not see it anymore. And it's, it's fun to play this little game of like these hidden logos. You can Google it. You can find all kinds of other ones. It's a lot of fun. And I'm just pointing out that now that we've done the Tositos thing and the FedEx thing, every time you see those logos, your eye isn't going to be on like the colors or the words anymore. You're going to see that arrow on the FedEx truck. And now it is my highest goal and aim. Every time you see the FedEx arrow, you're like hidden meaning, hidden presence of God. I can't not see it anymore. Though the circumstances in your life are like, there's nothing else here. There's no meaning here. And you're like, oh, and I've seen the arrow, man. I've seen the arrow, and it's pointing to my Savior. 
I can't not see the presence of God, even though everything around me would deny that it, would deny that it exists. Okay, let's come on back. Let's come on back. Chapter 2, verse 5. He goes, the, uh, the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. The seaweed has wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. Our obedience, we're talking about change, we're talking about repentance, we're talking about our obedience. Jonah's obedience, my obedience, is built on three things. And we can see it right here in Jonah's prayer. It's built on three things. The first thing that my obedience to my Savior is built on is my own hopelessness. That's a negative word, and it's going to get more positive, I promise, by the end. So, like, stick around. But my obedience is built on my own hopelessness. Jonah comes to this place where he sinks down to the roots of the mountains, and he comes down. And, and, and he has this idea that seaweed is all around his head. It's, he's in the belly of a fish. And so for all he knows, he is like at the bottom of the sea. And he has nothing left to offer. He is absolutely in this moment hopeless. He can do nothing good on his own whatsoever. Spiritually, I would love for each one of us, myself included, to recognize that's where we are and that's what we have to offer. We have nothing to offer towards our own salvation than the sin that had made it necessary in the first place. Obedience, our obedience and our repentance, our change comes from a hopelessness that we're absolutely unable to do this within the power of ourselves. Another maybe more positive way of saying on this, when life smacks you over and you're lying flat on your back, you have nothing left to look at but up. That's your only option. That's Jonah's only option. His obedience, his change is first built on hopelessness. The second thing, the second thing, it's, it's built on, on these on these. Idols. He goes, but you, Lord my God, you brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. When, when, when my life was ebbing away, he's, he's switched his way of speaking. And now he's almost like looking back on an event that he's currently in the middle of. Faith has a way of doing that. It, it's like, it's like he's, he's praising God for a provision he hasn't yet received. You can see this is, this is powerful stuff. He goes, uh, okay, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. My obedience, my change is built on three things. The first one, my obedience is, is built on my own hopelessness. The second one is recognizing that I, that my heart, John Calvin says, is an idol factory. And it will just create all of these idols to assign ultimate worship for. And, and Jonah says, uh, you, you know, those who cling to worthless idols are turning away for God's love for them. And I got this sense, he's not just talking about the, like, other sailors on the ship anymore. Like, like, he's not talking about, hey, those guys, you know, and they got all their cargo, and they got their, like, crystals and essential oils, and they, like, threw everything overboard. They, they you know, they did their little incantations, and they did the, you know, every other nation, you guys all have your little idols. 
And he's not just talking to them anymore. It's like he turns the camera around selfie mode and he's now talking about himself. And he's going, man, I have made for myself an idol. We all have. It's not like this little gold statue that we pray to at night, but the the idolatry that we have, the idols that we serve are usually like a good thing gone bad. And he's going, I have created this. And for him, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was himself. Like, I, I know how to manipulate God. I know if I run away, then they're never going to hear about the love of God, and they're never going to turn towards him, and so God is going to have to punish them. I can, like, manipulate and move God, right? I've got these levers that I can control God. And he's going, man, that's idolatry, thinking that I can do that. And he's recognizing now being buried up in this fish for three days. These idols are absolutely worship, worthless. What's your idol, you know? I think it's, it's worth kind of asking ourselves that question. Even in the English word worship uh, comes from, a, from, from an older variety. Uh, worship used to be worth-ship because it was just assigning worth to something. What is it that's worth more to you than the love of God? In this context, we might say absolutely nothing. Give it a couple days. Pray on it. See what God has for you. What's worth more to me than the love of God? Is it family, work, success, money, status? Something will come up. And that idol will let you down. We know that. It cannot stand up to the weight that you're putting on it. It will, it will fail, it will crash, and you will come down with it. Uh, Timothy Keller used to have this, uh, this saying. He said, when an idol fails, we have four responses. We blame the idol, try to find a better one. Maybe we blame the whole world. Maybe we blame ourselves. Jonah was doing a little bit of that. Or we turn to God. Let's get our hearts ready this week. When the idol fails us, to get ready to to turn our hearts, turn our hearts to God. Um, this is what we see uh, again and again. Uh, this one from Jeremiah chapter 2, uh, another, um, another prophet of God to his people. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, uh, he cites God as saying, my people have committed two sins. On the note of idolatry, this is so good. Two sins. Uh, the first one, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. They've turned away from this living water. That's kind of old-timey Bible language for like clean water. It's water from a river, water from a spring, uh, moving rot water, a brook, you know. It's not rancid and tepid. It's good. It's refreshing. It's healthy. It'll save your life instead of use it. He goes, that's the first problem. The first sin is they've forsaken me, the source, the spring of their living water that's cool and refreshing and healthy for them. And the second thing is that they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't even hold water. A cistern is like this, this, this kind of underground reservoir that, that you would dig. It, but they're out in the desert, so they'd cover it up and they keep their, their water hidden and protected, but the problem is they've dug these things and now they're broken. And so anytime you'd pour water in to store it for later, maybe it rains or something, and they kind of collect all of that water, the thing is broken in the desert. And so whatever water they pour in, the earth just soaks up because it's got a big old crack in it. And God's like going, this is absolutely insane. And the response of the people then is, oh, they, you know, there's, there's not enough water. I better, I better pour more in. My idol is now letting me down. I got that promotion at work, and it didn't really fulfill me. But you know what would? You know what would? And we're insane for thinking this way. Another promotion, right? 
I'm, I'm not really making enough money. And then I got a raise and it's still like not quite enough. But you know what would be really, really helpful is like more money on top of that. Or maybe like the number of, of, of partners that you might have. And like she didn't really satisfy or he didn't really. But let's like expand the pool and like find more and more. Let's keep pouring water into this broken cistern. And it's just soaking it up. And God's like, come on. You know how much I love you. You know there's a source of living water and it's me and I will fully and finally satisfy you like no created thing can. He sees his own hopelessness. He sees the futility of the idols that he puts his hope in. And the last thing is he sees the goodness of God finally. But I... He says, with shouts of grateful praise. I heard uh, a pastor friend of mine a couple of weeks ago say, the sign of a spiritually mature heart is gratitude. And I love that. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, remember God hadn't done anything yet. I will sacrifice to you, Jonah says. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. How do people change? Man, it's that goodness of God. That goodness of God. Um, I don't know where I picked this up, but, but somebody said uh, there, there's like three kinds of people in the world. There's religious people who think that uh, salvation is their own work. There's irreligious people in the world who think we don't need salvation whatsoever. And there's Christians who recognize what Jonah recognizes. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is his call. This is grace. It's, uh, get this, it's an undeserved gift. No, sorry, it's a gift to an undeserved person from an unobligated giver. An undeserving recipient from an unobligated giver. You, you have to have both. And we, we mix these things up sometimes, and then we like lose sight of what grace is. So before we send you out into the week, I want to make sure we, we kind of get these two things right. Um, if you have kids at home, and they are like rebellious, and they're kind of going off and doing their own thing, and they're making just terrible life decisions, um, but they're like a minor and they're under your house and you're like the parent or guardian. Like you signed up for this, right? You had, you had kids. And so you're going to do their thing. You're going to do your thing as a parent and you're going to provide for them. You're going to give them some food, right? You're going to give them a roof over the heads, a, a bed to sleep in at night. Even though they are an undeserving recipient, you can testify to that one, you yet are still an obligated giver. It's not grace. Uh, flip this thing around. Maybe you're in a group here at the church and your leader is phenomenal. I mean, like she has uh, readings done ahead of time. It makes like uh, extra questions that might apply more specifically to the group. Scheduling, she gets everybody. Child care, you know, like organizes that, like the logistics behind this thing. Amazing leader in this group, right? So everybody outside of time kind of gets together and it's like, hey, we should do something nice for her. We should get her like this awesome gift. Uh, not grace, not grace. Because even though you're an unobligated giver, it's, it's still a deserving recipient. That leader deserves whatever, whatever she gets from that group. Still not grace. That's not how Christianity works. It's not what it's, what it's built on. But let's say you have this neighbor who's just terrible, just an awful person, right? Like calls the cops every time like the, the car is in the driveway, just like backed out a teeny little bit into the road. And it's like, yes, that's, a, that's now a legal matter, Right? 
Like this, this, this neighbor who yells at the kids riding their you know, bikes through the, uh, over the sidewalk, you know, doesn't ever shovel. And worst of all, so, such a bad neighbor. Worst of all, they don't keep their lines in their grass straight. It's like circles. Like what kind of person does that? A bad neighbor, that's who. But then they get sick. And you see the hospice van in the driveway. And so you, along with the other neighbors, you say, I think we've got to take care of them. What we've got to do over here is we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna check in on them every day. We're going to drop off meals. We're going to clean his house for them. Is that what neighbors have to do? Absolutely unobligated givers. Does he deserve that? Far from it. An undeserving recipient. That's grace. That's grace. You see, this is so important. There's two ways of reading Jonah. There's a way of reading Jonah and being like, man, if you are disobedient, you better stay away from the beach, right? Because God is, is ready to smack you when you mess up. So you best not mess up. There's a way of reading Jonah that kind of goes through and be like, everything he did in the beginning of the story, I'm just going to do the exact opposite. And there's another way of reading Jonah going, you know what? I'm not Jonah. Jesus is the better and true Jonah. There's another way of reading this story and saying, thank God Jesus came from heaven to earth and he suffered inside of that fish for three and a half days. He took the sin of disobedience from all of us onto his shoulders and paid the price, buried it there and rose to new life. He did right what everything else we did wrong. And there's a way of reading Jonah that's just, or, that says, it's Jesus who did all of this on my behalf. And I'm just gonna say, thank you. Thank you for that good grace. We're going to be the kind of church that does the second thing. How do people change? Listen, the belly of a fish can coerce your obedience, but seeing Jesus is going to inspire it. Right? The belly of the fish is the carrot and the stick that we talked about earlier. Rewards and punishments, they can just kind of kind of make us be obedient. But I'm telling you, when you meet Jesus face to face, that's why we call it Encounter Church. When you meet Jesus, our obedience is inspired. And that dude I uh, I told you about earlier at the at the top of the message. Uh, <laughs> this is the wildest thing. One time he emerges out of his cave, his room, in in the house, and the friends kind of like peek around the corner. And they saw the floor of the room. They're like, what? Bro cleaned up his room. He, he, he comes out and he's got like fresh clothes on, you know, recently, recently cleaned. He's got his hair combed off to the side. And is, is that cologne in the air? Is he wearing cologne right now? Like what's happening, right? And so they go up and go, dude, this change. What in the world? Like, where did this come? We've been trying this for years, but like, how? Explain. And he looks at him and he goes, I met a girl. <laughs> I thought she would like a man who takes care of himself. So this is me now. The belly of a fish can coerce your obedience, but just love especially the love of God is going to inspire your obedience. Nineveh isn't going to seem like such a big ask when you spend time with Jesus and you get to know him and his good grace. If you'd like to spend some time with Jesus, we have uh, a prayer team here at church. Uh, during the last song, they're going to be set up by the prayer banners. 
they would love, we would love if you just, if you went over there and said, man, I need to meet Jesus. I need to meet Jesus. And just, just be prayed over. Uh, for right now, let me pray for you. Everybody uh, stand up wherever you might find yourself. Holden Heights, Kentwood, worshiping online. Let's, let's pray to that good God here together. Um, Jesus, <laughs> Lord, what, what other words are there? Thank you. We find ourselves as undeserving recipients. Man, we know our failings. We know our sin. We know how easily it could have been us with arms folded inside of that fish so long ago. But you took our place. Lord, you did right what we always did wrong. And you didn't have to. An unobligated giver, Lord. Thank you. Uh, Lord, if, uh, if we could ask one thing as we exit out of this place, that unending love that you have given us. Spirit, give us a little capacity to share that with somebody else that we, that we meet this week. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen.